Hello, and welcome back to the Long Distance Love Bombs podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jeremy Goldberg, and today's guest is Amy Keller-Laird. Amy is an award-winning lifestyle journalist who's also a champion of women's rights and social causes. She is the former editor-in-chief of Women's Health magazine from 2014 to 2018. She has also appeared in numerous national publications like the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, and she has appeared on television as an expert guest on shows like Good Morning America, Dr. Oz, and The Today Show. In this conversation, we dive into the subject of eating disorders, uh, mental health. We also talk about the beauty and fashion industry, magazines, magazine covers, the impact of culture on people's attitudes and perceptions about women's bodies and appearance. It's a juicy topic. It's a big topic. And Amy was brave enough to answer a call out that I did requesting an expert to come in and chat about eating disorders and women's health because we haven't specifically addressed that on this topic or on this podcast. And I wanted to do it. So we had a good chat. She's an interesting lady and it's very conversational and flowy. We go from topic to topic, but there's lots of big ideas about the health and wellness industry, as well as the beauty industry, what shapes that, how the words that we utilize have big and powerful impacts on our own self-perceptions, and how those perceptions can be hijacked and lead to uh, feelings of inadequacy and ultimately disorder. Lastly, I need to point out that Amy founded an organization and a website called clubmental.com, which embeds mental health into everyday life. And that website is unabashedly honest. There are no taboos. There's no preciousness. It is a place to start or continue your mental health journey when you don't know where else to turn or where to even begin. So you can check that out at clubmental.com. And now, without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Amy Keller Laird. Amy Keller Laird, we are live and recording. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to meet you. (laughs) Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And just to fill the audience in, I connected with you on an Instagram post that Sarah Sapora did. Sarah's also been on the podcast. If you listening want to listen to that one, she's wonderful. And the post was about this, uh, what is it called? American Academy of Pediatrics had decided to give drugs and surgery to children over 12 in regards to obesity prevention. And there was what somebody called a recipe for a shit show in the comment section. And your comment referenced science and data and facts and articles. And I immediately perked up and was Mm -hmm. like, I want to talk to this lady. And so I reached out and here we are. Here we are. For those listening that have no idea who... Amy Keller-Laird is. Do you mind giving a brief intro on who you are and what you're about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we were discussing earlier, Amy Keller-Laird was born in Columbia, Missouri, but has been a New Yorker for since 1998. But really what, what's pertinent to this podcast is um, I'm the former editor-in-chief of Women's Health. I've been a health journalist for a decade. Um, I have OCD. I write a lot about mental health. I launched my own mental health lifestyle platform called Mental, because we're taking back the word. Um, it's at clubmental.com um, last October. Uh, and I've written a million articles and had recently done a big report called New Year, New Eating Disorder around the New Year, New You messaging that comes out every January. Um, and so when I saw Sarah's post about what was happening in the world of childhood obesity and how it's now like, oh, let's medicate and let's break surgery and do all of these things, I kind of looked at the report I'd done around eating disorders and it does in fact seem like a shit show what they're advising. I mean, but, but right. Like in, in layman's terms, um, in fact, I mean, are we going, should I just go here? Like I, you know, it's the majority of data, right. So I am, I am a journalist. Um, I do look at a million clinical studies around everything I do. I want it to be proven, peer reviewed, talk to experts, et cetera, the people who are actually doing the latest research on these types of topics. And 
when you look at data around people who are, if we are going to use the words overweight and obese, which, you know, different communities don't want to use that, but just for the sake of everyone understanding, there was a study that basically showed that when people came into the New York City school system and teenage teenagers and they monitored people B, people's BMI, which first of all, we know is flawed for 80 million reasons and it's pretty racist and there's all kinds of things wrong with BMI. So why we're still using BMI as a measurement of people's health, I don't know. But like, okay, in this study, the researchers came in and looked at people's BMI and then they told the kids like, oh, you're in this category or you're in this category or whatever. And the year that followed, the people who had been told oh, you have a high BMI, you're in the obese, you're in the overweight category, had even higher BMIs than the people who actually had high BMIs but weren't told that. So what the, what does this say? This is a little gobbledygook. But what that's saying is when you identify people and put them into a category and say, you're, you have a problem and you need to lose weight and you need to do X, Y, Z, the reverse often happens. It doesn't actually help them. It sort of works as a shaming um, mechanism. And a lot of data also around the fact of when people say, oh, um, or try to give unhelpful advice, you need to lose weight or, oh, you need to do this for your health or X, Y, Z or whatever. Or when people make comments like that, it, it, it again backfires. It doesn't actually motivate people to lose weight. Instead, it um, puts them back into their shame spiral. So the fact that a national organization is now suggesting that we really like make sure kids know they're overweight and like they need to do something about it. It just sounds really scary to me and seems like it will not only not help the obesity issue we have in America, but might hurt it. Because the the better way, if you actually do need to lose weight, right? Or you want to lose weight, right? Whichever your reasonings are, the better way to do it is with self-compassion. And that might sound woo-woo, but it's actually been proven that like when you treat yourself with self-compassion and when, if you are going down a weight loss journey and you, um, you know, you're trying to eat a certain way and then all of a sudden you eat a sleeve of Oreos and then you're like, oh, self-flagellating and, you know, hating yourself, the chances are you're just going to eat more Oreos when you go, oh, you know what? I'm human. I, I had Oreos. It's fine. It's cool to eat Oreos. Like I'm just a person. Then the next day you probably jump back onto your path. So it's it's like, I don't know, these th th this idea that we need to just keep reminding people they need to lose weight as if they haven't thought of it before. I mean, I don't know to go into a rabbit hole here. It's like telling people like, oh, you're anxious. Just calm down. It's like, duh, no, die. No. Don't tell me that. That's not going to help anyway. Yeah. It is an interesting conundrum to raise awareness or provide information to individuals thinking, oh, they know more. So now, ergo, they will choose differently. Right. And right. just as background, I did some of my PhD work around behavior change. And that very simple idea has been disproven for decades. And yet we continue to give pamphlets out, share facts, provide information with the mistaken idea that now, since we know better, we will do better. And it sounds like what you're suggesting is the same thing that is occurring in the health and diet industry at times. Exactly. It's, it's like, Wait, I let, think... me, let me ask you, let me ask you, from your perspective, like, because you were in it, right? Like you were the editor of Women's Health magazine. And you were shaping magazine covers and content and editorials. And you had a large voice and a say in how a lot of these topics were covered. How did you navigate your like objectivity or your desire to affect change in that space? Um, yeah, I mean, I when I was at Women's Health, right, when I took over women's health. I didn't really know what I, I mean, I had been working there as the executive editor. I thought, okay, I'll just kind of, oh my God, I got this job. I'm going to keep going along. But over time I started realizing we can actually affect change. It was around the time Trump was elected and, uh, and, and healthcare and politics were overlapping. And it was like healthcare sits at the intersection of culture. Right. And so the idea, you know, at that time in 
I wrote these Dear John letters actually to some cover lines that we used a lot. We used we used to use the phrase bikini body on women's health. It was a big seller. This is back when newsstand sales were a thing and you could track, you know, how people reacted to cover lines and do studies around that, et cetera. And um, you know, obviously the body positivity movement had started taking off and uh which we know had, you know, like, hello, that had been around since the 70s. It wasn't a new thing that started in the 2000s, but it was like, oh, finally, the mass media gets involved and realizes, oh, maybe we shouldn't be talking to people this way or saying you have to get a bikini body to get in a bikini, et cetera. So we did the survey at Women's Health. It was like, what don't you like about us? And we listed out all these cover lines, all these cover celebs, all these things, just to, you know, verify what I thought I was seeing popping up around, you know, culture. And the top two cover lines people did not like were using the phrase bikini body or drop two sizes. And, you know, then when I start thinking about it, well, right. I mean, my God, nobody should be losing, dropping two sizes in the span of the, a monthly magazine. Like that's not healthy. So I wrote these Dear John letters formatted like Dear Bikini Body, Hi, like, thanks for your service, but goodbye. Like, wouldn't want to be a, um, you know, you're basically insulting people, even if that wasn't our intent. Um, and and talk to the readers and the public about the fact that, yes, look, if you want to have healthy weight loss, that's cool. If you've decided that for yourself or you've worked with your doctor and decided that for yourself. It, but the the way we talk about it is going to change. We are not going to use phrases like that that have implications that only a certain type of body is a bikini body or you have to get this or you have to do this or in two weeks, you're all of a sudden going like, to have these flat abs. You know, I mean, these were cover lines. I, I think, unfortunately, when you were in the magazine business, as it was dying out, and you had to sell on newsstand in order to still have a job. It's sort of like, ah, oh, what do you do? So, but this is where culture was going. And this is the right thing to do, right? We don't need to talk to people about that. You can still come here for healthy weight loss, but you, you don't have to come here and be shamed. Um, and that actually, it was like an explosion of press. I, I, I don't know. I didn't even really think about it at the time. I was just kind of like, this is the thing to do. We saw it in the survey. We're going to not do this anymore, et cetera. Um, and it was like people being like, thank you, women's health and like all these things. And then I got some snarky responses like Refinery29 was like, welcome to the party, women's health. And it was like, OK, well, I did have to sell on newsstand. I'm just going to say that one more time. Um, you're a digital publication. But it was like. This is so interesting. And then like a year later, you know, after talking to some exercise phys physiologists, et cetera, about why are we even talking about weight as a measure of health versus metabolic markers. Um, why do we keep focusing so much on weight? Because as you know, and, and this is not a, you know, uh, technical term, but like people can be skinny fat, right? Like you can be walking around and someone's objective view of you is, oh, that person's thin, but like, they're not healthy. So like, can we stop with this? Like looking at someone who we think is unhealthy because of their weight, they could be metabolically healthy. And so then we started, you know, adding in real women to, instead of fitness models into our workouts, et cetera, and started doing these things. So um, that's where I sort of, you know, really kind of got interested in the science and the data behind the way people um, have desires to change and then the things that other people do to try to nudge them into changing that aren't actually effective. Yeah. So just to clarify, you banned the use of the term bikini body from your magazine that is what we did yes and that means you're not seeing it on the cover or even just articles yeah we didn't use it anywhere i mean i'm no longer the editor of women's health but sure. um yes we i don't i don't think they yeah. revert it but um uh yeah it would yeah, be awkward it was, if they did <laughs> <laughs> um it was it was a it was an often used phrase. Like we would, we had this wall of like all the former covers, right? You would see how covers were next to each other and you had sales data around covers, et cetera. Um, and it was a regularly used phrase um, since the inception of the magazine. And so there was some, so you then know, just, to, just to interject there, are you suggesting that the use of the word bikini body was a really helpful tactic to move magazines and to sell copies? Mm -hmm. And that is because people are being shamed into buying the magazine or how do you explain that? 
Um, I don't know if people would actually, I, I mean, I guess there's different segments. I'm not a scientist, like right, this may right. be a question for you, but, um, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's different segments of people, um, people who do like to be like, oh, okay, I want to lose five pounds before summer. And then people who all their lives have been shamed about their weight and then they right. see bikini body and they're like, can we stop this? You know? So I, yeah, look, there's different factions of people. There's mm -hmm. also like what people say they want, what people don't say they want. You know, there used to be a whole thing where people would tell the bag as the editors of Cosmo, why don't you put real people on the cover or whatever? And then you put a real person in its tanks. So. I guess it goes back to that new year, new you, new year's Eve resolution slash mantra, which for some people is hugely inspiring, loving, encouraging, et cetera. But there are certainly vast numbers of people that would have shame-based undertones, judgment, et cetera. And so perhaps overall, it is better to just not go to that place in the same right. way. Overall, it's better not to use bikini body. Yeah. I mean, that look, there are, there are things that might work and might sell, but aren't the right things to do culturally. So, mm. uh, and, or just like, once you see the studies that like, this is how that makes another segment of society, a large segment of society feel isn't the right thing to do. And there are other ways to talk about, you know, if you want to, uh, get more in shape for summer or whatever it be, without using that phrase, right? It's like, hi, we could be a little more creative, aren't we editors here? So um so I do remember the pushback, something like if you have a body, you have a bikini body. Exactly. Right? That's what it is. Right. Exactly. It's like, I don't, I think I I don't think, and I mean I don't that when the phrase first came around, I don't think people were like, I'm gonna use this to shame everybody. Right. It's like at first it was at first, right, if you look back, okay, here's a little magazine history. If you look back at like when this legendary editor, RIP Helen Gurley Brown, took over Cosmo, okay, Cosmo, it it, it had you it it became this magazine where any kind of bodily agency for women was kind of like a feminist thing, right? So deciding how you want to handle your body and do this thing could have, I mean, I'm I'm making up theories here, like I didn't do a paper on this. It back in the day been like, oh, this is a way for like women can do whatever they want, right? And at Cosmo, it was like, you can talk about sex, you can do this, you can do what you want with your body, you can do, you know, um, it's not just about um women don't have any power. So, but then eventually I think that phrase started just getting like bikini body or new year, new you specifically became so ingrained with weight loss versus new year, new you theoretically could mean anything, right? It could be, oh, I'm going to have a new attitude to this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be nicer. I'm going to blah, blah. Like when you look at the history of new year's resolutions, people's resolutions used to be like, I'm going to be nicer and I'm going to help communities. And now it's like top three, lose weight, exercise more, eat better. So they're all kind of tied up around weight loss. Um, so I think as that phrase, just like new you took on like new body. And it's kind of like, well, I can't, I can't have a new body. Um, and, you know. Yeah, and, it, and just to add to that, it sounds like the new you, new you mantra there implies also that current body equals bad. Current exactly. body equals not Why do great. I need a new body, right? I don't, right. Yeah. They're, they're, they impl I think it is really all about the implications there. And the bizarre thing, once I started doing this big report on this, is like, the NIH has a page that uses the phrase New Year, New You. Uh, the Cleveland Clinic uses the phrase New Year, New You. Um, it's it's everywhere. It's like permeated. Like Wal it's on, Walmart has a, a, a whole section of New Year, New You products. It's like, it has like permeated society. Um, it's interesting though, this year there were a few instances. I actually, I think, oh God, I don't know. It was like Land's End or, or some brand like that. Um, was like new year new you please it's like that that they're just trying to sell you a a gym membership i mean which you know who okay well you're you know that that's how it starts getting used um so i think it's it's like starting to, to peel back around but like talking to women for that story who had a history of disordered eating it is particularly triggering because they would say those are the phrases that I would see every year. And even if they were in recovery for their eating disorders, that kind of 
terminal that they they still get triggered into the eating disorder thinking of like oh well, I do want that you know I it, it's it's like talking to one woman who was like I know it's not healthy when I had an eating disorder but I still want it and so when those messages then are pervasive around them it's really hard to not feel like it's really hard to not slip back into that pattern. Yeah. I was shocked by some of the statistics cited in that report that you did about new you, new year, new you. Like I wrote down to uh, 20, 20% of people with anorexia die by suicide, which I thought was just astounding. And then um, 65% of dieters return to their pre-diet weight within three years, 65%. Um, yeah. So- it's, I think some of the, I, it, what people don't realize is that, sorry, I have my son chatting in the background. If we're hearing people, no, you're good. Um, uh, people don't realize how deadly eating disorders can be, particularly among mental health conditions. Um, Either people die physiologically because they don't have enough nutrients or they die by suicide. And it's, it's because in part, um, they just can't stop their thought process and wanting to do that. And it's, it's a draining experience. Um, and so when we're like selling like journals using new year, new you, maybe we shouldn't do that because people are dying from (laughs) these kinds of messages. And the, 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 the one that's, you, uh, the other one you cited that like, or you didn't cite, but 20% of people who are admitted into an eating disorder facility attribute the onset of their eating disorder to messaging like that. They said they're basically saying 20% of the people who are going to an eating disorder treatment facility say pro dieting, anti-obesity messaging is what triggered my eating disorder. And that's a shocking stat to me. That was the stat that I was like, Oh my, oh my God. And then also the high percentage of people who say that dieting eventually turns into disordered eating. And that's not to say that people can't diet. Like I, like, I don't want to get into that messaging because if you want to lose weight, you shouldn't be shamed on the other spectrum. Like whatever, whatever your reason is, it's up to you. You do you, but it's the way in which it gets talked about and that, that it gets conflated with, like you said, the old Jew is bad. Um, so 20, 20% of people admitted to an eating disorder facility suggest that dieting messages started their eating disorder. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's a clinical study. Yeah. Of course, that de- that's people's perceptions. Um, we can't prove that with machine, but I think it's pretty powerful that this kind of messaging we got to change this. I mean, look, look, we know for a fact that just be telling people there's an obesity epidemic in this country doesn't do anything. It just backfires. Like, so like, why do we keep doing it? Like, I just, it, it's not working. Um, I think it's more like, again, it's like going down this more road of like self-compassion and talking about like improving your health. Um, and I, I just find it, it's, you know, I also like, there's some magazine called like slimming world or something like that, that just, it's just like still out there, like surviving. And like, it's just the same old messages. Um, Do you see the, do you see those messages shifting or do you see the culture moving in a positive trajectory? Yeah. I mean, actually there was one, there was one study um, cited around new year's resolutions. It was a Forbes health poll where improving my mental health was the top new year's goal. Um, so it's interesting, depending on who you look at, you look at statistics polls, it's about losing weight. You look over here at Forbes health. Maybe it's the people who are answering the polls, right? Because people who are answering a Forbes health poll are, you know, maybe a different subset of human being, but yes. So people magazine for one got rid of the name of their previous, they used to do an annual issue called half their size. Um, oh, I remember that as a kid, yeah. like reading my mom's people magazine and, yeah, had a before and, it was like and the after person kind of... holding out like their pants and whatever and whatever. So yeah, 
The new editor-in-chief, who I know from the magazine industry, Wendy Noggle, did away with that this year. Um, and they are talking about, I think, what they call meaningful wins or something like that. And one of the women they profiled is a woman who is not slim by standards, but is like one of the strongest women in the world. And she actually did lose weight, but she's still at a higher weight. So I think that's another thing. We can talk about a weight loss journey where you're going, you're not just going down to size two. A weight loss journey can be someone, for example, Sarah Sapora talks about this a lot. She's on a weight loss journey, you know, from here to here versus somebody else might start here and go down to here. Um, and so I think when we talk about weight loss journeys, that's another thing that can be done where you show people at all spectrums, at all, you know, different weight points across the spectrum, because your healthy might be, you know, 282 while someone else's is 165. You know, it's like that, that, that's like a big point. So anyway, the people thing occurred, I think, which was really interesting, you know, just trolling around the internet, you know, I saw in style doing um, a story around like, let's not talk about diets. Let's talk about therapy. Um, and so it's interesting that it's kind of <laughs> shifted around to mental health. Um, and magazines, I think to be fair, most of the women's magazines do not use this phrase anymore. It was really popular in the 2000s and in, you know, and then I think it trickled out of that. And I also just to say women's magazines did a lot of like legit and amazing health reporting too. They get vilified for a lot of things, but, um, and then there's also like, so you could say, look at TikTok hashtags, like new year, new you, new year, new me. It's like, they're in the billions, but there's also the hashtag new year, same me. So it, it's like the balance <laughs> The balance is occurring. Now, there was also a really scary report that came out of the Wall Street Journal around this, a bunch showing just how prevalent TikTok, there were TikTok videos of people talking about eating at 300 calories. And I have this whole thing where I want to, I want to do this story where I'm like, you can't, so I'm going down a rabbit hole here. You can't use the word depression or uh, anorexia or psychiatric or whatever, without your TikTok video being like, ding, do you have to put like depression with one of the S's as like, you know, a number sign or like, in or else it gets like dinged is like, this isn't appropriate, but we have like people talking about 300 calorie diets. We have 60-year-old men talking about their 15-year-old girlfriends. Um, why is it the algorithm is dinging mental health information, I, but but like not dinging like these like lecherous men? I, you know, I, it's it's like I'm on a rant about it because I also for my for my site mental, um, I have a Pinterest account where I have three followers. I don't know why I can't get any followers on Pinterest, so feel free to follow me. But I had someone reach out to me from Pinterest and be like, oh, hey, we see you're like, you know, doing some advertising on here, et cetera. We want to help you, whatever. And I'm like, okay, great. Like, what about X, Y, Z? And then they wrote back and they're like, oh, wait, we saw what kind of content you're doing. We can't, sorry, that violates. We can't help. We can't offer you services. And I was like, we, we want Pinterest to be a, a positive place. I'm like, but I'm offering, what I'm offering are mental health solutions and uh, information around educational information, as well as reasons for people to not feel shame for having a mental health condition or feel free to talk about it. And they were just like, I'm sorry, I understand, but this violates our policies. I'm like, what? What? So I don't know. I went into a tangent. Anyway, peep, peeps, be peeps be talking about 300 calorie diets that are just like killing people, but we can't talk about depression without like morphing the word. So the algorithm can't read it. Anyway. It's such a surreal world, isn't it? Um, <laughs> because I hear that and I think, oh, that's like a a power bar. That's not sustainable in the long term. And then I think back to that study that I referenced earlier, which is 65% of dieters return to their pre-diet weight after, within three years. And it's like, it doesn't seem like a practical, long-term, viable, pragmatic solution to even consider that kind of a setup. It's like, what are you I just going to eat celery forever? You're not a rabbit. Well, you can't. I mean, and that's why diets, the most restrictive diets fail. Um, yeah. And for full disclosure, I spent a year as the head of content and creative at Weight Watchers, where we don't talk about 
we, I'm, I don't work there anymore. Um, I am not like anti or pro weight loss. It, like I, it's, it's like, if you, it's like, how do you talk about it? the interesting thing about that company is the, the chief medical officer is actually a behavioral psychologist and, and what is preached, what he does preach is self-compassion because the, the, that the only way, if you want to lose weight to sustain it is to have self-compassion toward yourself on the journey and to not be overly restrictive or say, I can't eat that whole category or I can't do this or I can't do that. I'm actually writing this story right now about blood glucose um, for another publication, Airmail, uh, which is the new publication from the former editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. Um, and I've been talking to a lot of nutritionists along this journey of, of, of people who want to eat by blood glucose levels. Uh, they want to try to smooth out their blood glucose and not have it spike. And Everyone I speak to says the thing that we all know. Anytime you cut out a whole category or you say that's off limits, like the human brain is like, I want it, right? So like, give me, give me. So, right, it's like this woman I just talked to was like, if you want the Oreo, have the Oreo, just eat some peanut butter with it. Because then it's like, if you, there are more realistic things. And I don't even want to say that because I, if you want to eat the Oreos, just eat the Oreos. Like the, I believe that. But like, if you do want to lose weight, like I, I know we're all over the place. We're like eating disorders, losing weight, et cetera. But like, if you do want to lose weight, but you're like, I love an Oreo, fine. Eat a little bit of like protein with it. And then you, you know, you negate part of the problem. So I think the, the, I, I do think and I mean, I could be slammed for saying this, but I do think some of the diet companies, diet, are actually um, propagating a behavioral health methodology. But it's really hard to to do that when you've been a company that's been around, as any of these companies have for 50 years, and you maybe in the past did contribute to diet culture. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about your role at Weight Watchers. I'm intrigued. <laughs> yeah. Are you like, oh my God, what, what, what is this now? No, um, I'm intrigued by that because from my perspective, and admittedly, I don't really know anything about dieting. I've never been on a diet. I'm just like a, a skinny dude that always works out and has ridiculous genes. And my perception of Weight Watchers is like, my grandma was on it. And mm -hmm. every time I spoke to her, she was really stressed about the points of the meals and well, weighing herself and pound by pound. And it always seemed like in this N of one, admittedly, that she was stressed, anxious, not very compassionate with herself and yeah. really wasn't having a great time. So it is, and I can only, you know, say so much, <laughs> but it is admittedly, I think, a different company now than it was then. When, if you look back, and even when I worked there, we did a post, we we had this series of like, then now, where you would see old Weight Watchers, like memos that were like, if it's spreadable, it's inedible. And then it'd be like, today we're launching peanut butter. We got Weight Watchers peanut butter. So like a lot, like literally, if you look back in old Weight Watchers magazines, and this is not a secret, like, we posted that on Weight Watchers social media. It'd be like, no waffle, no, no waffles. And then it's like, flash forward to 2022, we sell waffle makers, you know? So, um, and in 2022 and now 2023, the head of like science for the company is a behavioral health psychologist. And there are amazing people who work there who are behavioral health psychologists, a lot of nutritionists, lots of studies that they would do with Yale, et cetera. They do a lot around non-shaming, like actual clinical studies they do with universities, et cetera, around that. So I'm not here to be like, yay, Weight Watchers. I, um, but more that there's actually a lot in, in the program. I think the most fascinating thing I found about when I worked there, and I was the head of content and creative. So I wasn't deciding in any of the science or any of these things, we powered the marketing assets, the social media, the stories, um, talked to the members, et cetera. We, we ran the photo shoots and Weight Watchers actually uses all members in their ads. They're not stock images from Getty. So I was um, running these photo shoots and we would have members from different areas of the country come in. And by the end of every shoot, these people were best friends, best friends. 
I've never seen anything like it. And I've done a lot of real people stories in my days. Well, I worked at Redbook. I worked at Allure. I worked at Good Housekeeping. I, I've never seen there's something about, and these are people who loved being on the program. There's something about their shared journey and people sharing one of these girls. Her name was Claire. She like does like Claire's cocktails and it'd be all these cocktails she still drinks, but there's certain points. So the point system does still exist. Cool. Um, I think yeah. it's a good point, though, that you're raising here, which is there's a lot of good going on in the industry. If, if, and... if it works for you, I think that's what it is. If it works for you, you can actually find a lot of community there. They have a lot of they have virtual workshops. They now I don't know why I'm like an ad for WW right now, but like yeah. they have identity workshops. People in the LGBTQ community who are in the weight law, like Latina moms, this and that, the Black women's workshop. And these people are like forming real friendships. So in, a, in in contrast to the old days where you'd show up at this meeting hall in the bottom of a church and it's like, you know, everybody's 70 and older, you could find your peeps now if you want, right? So, but like, again, there's a subset of people whose moms or grandmas, in your case, grew up on Weight Watchers and it created in certain ways, diet culture for them. Yeah. So, um, then this is a, a softball slash, you know, thought experiment, but how do we shift this diet culture? (laughs) I mean, it seems like this is a very ingrained, lots of momentum, a lot of history, societal (laughs) issue, uh, that is slowly being chipped away in various parts and pieces, but, are you optimistic about where things are going? Like, do we, are we totally missing something well, significant here? Here's the sad thing. Okay. So I was like, kind of alarmed to see that eating disorders are on the rise because I was like, well, the proliferation of body positivity in the mainstream media over the past decade, well, could that, but no, like while body positivity was rising and then sort of got to some people co-opted by like skinny white girls you know, eating. So I was like, maybe right with like people being more like we're showing different versions of beauty. People are on the covers of magazines or, or, you know, being seen as, you know, sex symbols of all different sizes and abilities, et cetera, et cetera. Like this has to be shifting culture. And I think in a way it is, but then you see the eating disorders are going up. So you're like, okay, well, you know, I I do think COVID had a lot to do uh, with the rise in eating disorders in the past few years because it's you and your house alone, right? And eating disorder treatment really relies on you getting out of your own self and head and being with your therapist and other people, et cetera. But um, what I do think is good is that we do, we are magazines and i don't i keep saying magazine but i mean editorial brands etc are showcasing tess holidays this beautiful um plus size model you know she was on the cover of self right we've got um a woman actually who was an intern at allure who has like a neurodegenerative disease i believe and is in a wheelchair is on the l word and she's like sexiest fuck you know like she's so, like and she like this didn't happen 30 years ago. So like there's strides, right? There are strides of like people of different abilities, different sizes, different skin tones, et cetera. Hopefully being seen as um, like beauty can look different. And I, you may know this from your expertise, but like talking to psychologists, it's like when we, when we put in front of people, different images of beauty or different, what can be beautiful, expand their repertoire of what can be beautiful. And it's not just one thing, one size, one look, one this, their mind does start to change. And I think that's true of myself. I have curated my own social feeds around multiple people and sizes and this and that. And I'm more harsh on the way I look than I see someone else's body. And I say, that's beautiful. Like in, in all of its, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I remember reading some studies in terms of messaging, and they were basically um, affirming or or finding that the more that the messenger looks like you, the more relatable they are, the more impactful the message, the more lasting the change. And so I think it's inevitable that seeing a diversity of bodies, colors, genders, etc., will have a more pronounced impact on individuals that need to see those people 
that are like, oh, they're like me. They did it. I can do it too. Yep. In the same way that I remember when Obama won the presidency, a lot of black people were extremely excited about that possibility. And you were seeing black children realizing that the sky's the limit, that they can be president too. And he looks like me, so I can do that too. And it sounds similar to what you're describing here. Yeah. I mean, I remember that classic photo of the young boy robbing Obama's head and being like, you have hair like me. And yeah. it kind of makes you want to cry because it's like, oh my God, the power. Um, I mean, so there seeing was people whole... in wheelchairs and being, seeing people exactly. that are plus size, but also healthy and active, et cetera, not being vilified or cast aside in the shadows, but being brought out front and put on magazine covers and the front page of papers. Exactly. And I, I think the interesting thing, and this is like, so there's a model. Um, oh my God. Why am I blanking on her name? Ashley. Oh my God. I can't please believe don't I... please don't look at me for any support with naming models. I'm okay. useless. I'm sorry. Well, she became she is plus she sounds size. great. She's beautiful. Um, yeah, she's wonderful. I'll figure I'll think of it after this. I tried to get her on the cover of women's health many times. I got turned down. Um oh. she why would somebody turn you down for being on a magazine cover? They want to be in a fashion magazine. Oh, not a health magazine. Yeah. And so the idea would be, sorry, I'm, this is a tangent, but. This is a total tangent, but the, I can talk about this forever because. But so the health magazine would be like bad for the brand or that would hinder the possibility that they would be seen as fashionable? It, there is a certain cachet to like being on the cover of Vogue or Harper's Bazaar or Elle or et cetera. And I think that has shifted now that health has become the new <laughs> health is like the new cool, you know, but um, if you're on the, uh, I don't know the exact, you know, psychology behind it, but it, it's a, it was a very common thing where like I got Reese Witherspoon on the cover of women's health. And that was the first time in a decade she'd appeared on any non-fashion magazine. And so I was like actively working. We had Gwyneth Paltrow on the cover, et cetera. Um, but right, I mean, I like there were people who turned us down multiple, multiple times because they would only appear on fashion covers because it 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 kind of puts you in a different like I'm cool category. Um, so interesting. Yeah. Um, in my brain, oh, I'm the, like, hey, the why whole cover you... celeb negotiations is like a whole world of itself. I mean, my God. Oh, yeah, that, that's imagine. a stressful thing where you're like, okay, I want to have so-and-so on the cover, but I want to do this. But if I can't get her, then I get to, yeah. Um, it's such I a forgot. weird job. You do, do you ever sit back when you were doing it and being like, this is just such a weird job. Like I get to decide who, yeah. millions, of pup, who millions of people see when they're standing in line at the grocery store on the cover. You, you like the coolest thing ever was when you, I'd and... like, yeah, be on the subway and I'd see someone reading it and you'd be like, I, use, I have an editor's page um yeah you feel like you have impact i mean and i guess you do to a certain extent um mm. but, but while you're doing it you're kind of just like oh it's my job i do this I, I i need this person i have to make i mean my whole thing was calculated risk taking i that's why i was like i'm gonna get rid of bikini body i'm gonna write about mental health and i'm gonna talk about myself as the editor-in-chief of women's health having ocd and that might not seem like a big deal now but in 2016 when it happened it was people weren't being like, I have OCT and I run a global brand. Um, How did um, that go? Do you mind talking about it? Oh, I talk about it all the time. I write, you can, if you Google me, me. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, I wrote a piece for well and good later on called, is it blood? Is that blood? Because that's my saying. I'm like have contamination OCD. I think everything's blood. I think everything with red pen, which was a hazard back in my beauty editor days. I used to be a beauty editor. I was the beauty director of Allure. So I know now you're like, wait, beauty, weight loss, eating disorders, what this woman is bizarre. Um, I am well-rounded. I used to deal with a lot of red makeup back in the day. Like red lipsticks would come in red nail polish and then it'd be like the red nail polish would spill as it always does. And it gets on. And then I'd be like, is that blood guys? And they'd be like, it's polish. And I'd be like, um, so I can laugh about it. but um. 
yeah, I, I was never like, I never like hid my OCD. Anyone who's worked with me knows all these things. Like I have my own pens. Don't touch my pens. We used to have to write on hard copy paper, right? It would pass around the magazine from editor to editor. And I'd be like, okay, don't, don't come in my office. To try to take my pen. I got, I got the, the, the community pen jar. Please use that. Um, but when I was at women's health and one of my editors, this again, this is like 2015, 2016, the stats were starting to come out around all the rise of anxiety amongst women. Let's do a story, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I can't with just a bunch of more stats. Oh, oh, this many people have anxiety. It's like in, oh, it's terrible. I forgot about it five seconds later. And so I was like, what if, like, what if I'm like, I'm running this brand and I have OCD and it's a health brand. And then we get all these other people and everything we went on staff who wants to talk about it. So our legal department shut us down from anyone on staff talking about it because they were like, then they could sue us. What if we later fire them? And they could say it was because, so this is the whole conundrum, but I had already disclosed. So I, um, <laughs> they couldn't stop me. Um, so, but what we did was we did, we fo- we found like 13 other women of all professions, you know, doctors, writers, this, that artists, um, with various conditions, depression, uh, bipolar, borderline personality disorder, postpartum, et cetera. And we photographed all of them. And on the front, it was this, I mean, this is where the power of print comes out. On the front, it was like just this collage of women. Which of these women has mental illness? Flip all of them, including me. I'm the editor of Women's Health. I have OCD, blah, blah, blah. And we partnered with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, um, which is a, a pretty well-known uh, mental health organization, a very well-known, I mean, it's probably, you know, uh, on like a poll about women and mental health. And so we got them involved. We got the Jed Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, et cetera. We did this whole thing, you know, this hashtag campaign back in the day when that was popular. Who, not what, right? Um, I went on the Today Show. I was talking to Willie Geist about my OCD. I'm like, Maybe no one's going to hire me from here, Willie. And he's like, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. Um, yeah, you're on the Today Show. I think you have some options in the future. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of when I started like being like, oh, this, right. Like we can have an impact here. And that that story, um, that was sort of like, there's a TikTok trend, which is no longer trending, but like six months ago, this TikTok trend that was like, using this sound that's like, this is going to be my personality for the rest of my life. And I'm like, (laughs) I kind of became like the accidental OCD poster child. I was like, I didn't really know where this was going, but um, it was like at that point where I was like, after I didn't work at women's health anymore, it was like, okay, what, where are all the mag, where's the magazine where, for mental health, but people who also like beauty and fashion and lifestyle and this and that. It was like, you can get like serious mental health coverage, right? Or you can go to like the Cleveland Clinic or the Mayo Clinic and you get lists of symptoms in this. And you can go to some mental health sites. And at the time it was like black and white photos and like tears and the hand on the window and running in the rain and fetal positions. Or you can get like women's magazines, which at the time it was like mental health was mostly hidden under mindfulness or wellness, or it was kind of sanitized, et cetera. Everybody's writing about it a lot more now. It's, you know, the pandemic blew this open. But when I started thinking about it four years ago, like to now 2022, or when I launched my site clubmental.com, there was no site that like brings them together, right? Like the fact that like you can talk and you can cuss and you can be funny and you can be this, but you can also have depression. You can, you know, have a big job and you have to look you know, this and you put on lipstick, but like then you go home and you cry in your bed or you have to deal with this or you go to therapy or you take meds and let's talk about it. Um, And let's use photos that make people not want to like cry even more when they're there, right? Like, where is that? So that's why I launched this brand. Um, And the way I, I think the most compelling way to explain it is like, I believe that we can use, and because I come from this background of being a beauty editor, we can use everyday lifestyle and beauty objects as mental health management tools. And I don't mean we're going to light lavender candles and all be cured of our depression. We know that this isn't happening. And we know that like wearing a gratitude sweatshirt is not doing anything. Um, But there are studies. So I like launched these like best of mental health awards around products that are based on experts. I interviewed, we interviewed 17 experts. We looked at like 60 plus clinical studies. And the one that strikes me is to explain this the best is there was a study that found that blue light blocking glasses can actually reduce mania symptoms in people with bipolar. And it's like, well, hello, like that is a side effect free tool. 
not to cure bipolar, not to replace medicine or uh, medication or therapy or whatever you need to do, but it's like those kind of things. Or I also had a category that was like, when you are so depressed, you can't shower. These are the best products vetted by dermatologists, dentists, et cetera, to deal with skin, tooth, hair issues, right? Like you can't brush your teeth. Okay. This is the mouthwash that contains the ingredient that will keep your mouth the most free of bacteria until you were able to do that again. So I just, I'm trying, I think like what my goal is to be like, let's talk about these things. They're normal. It's normal to say, you know, you know, people four years ago wouldn't be like, I haven't showered in four days, but like, I'll tell you there go times where like, I am kind of depressive and like that happens. And it is like, okay, well, how do I handle my hygiene when that happens? Right. Um, mm. anyway, I, I it, it's good. And, and it sounds like what you're alluding to there with the OCD and the mental health stuff is at a foundation, the same as the eating disorder, obesity stuff, which is be graceful, be gentle, love yourself where you're at and do the best you can with with the the aspect of like shame minimization comparison judgment minimization and just it's okay it's okay and i think the other thing is to also realize we don't also have to like while we should have self-compassion we don't have to also like love ourselves every second like there were also studies we did at women's health we did this big survey on um body global survey because we had a ton of international editions and it was like, people don't want to be told, love yourself every second. Like, I don't have to love my elbow to be like an okay human. Like, I can accept myself. I can be body neutral. I can be body accepting. I can not like parts of my body. And that's okay, too. Like, people were getting basically shamed for not, like, having body love at all times. So, it's just like, can we just all be normal? Like, I don't, I don't, like, why? Why is everyone always just, like, pushing their shit on other people? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I am uh, I'm doing my best to normalize abnormality and make kindness cool. And I, uh, I love I'm grateful for you stopping by the podcast and and chatting about all this stuff with me. And I wanted to highlight your website is clubmental.com. Is that yeah. where you you want to drive people to find find you? I know yeah, you're on Instagram. I can, okay. You can Instagram, we've got a club underscore mental. But everywhere else, if you want to see me doing some weird, weird TikToks, um, just club mental TikTok. Club mental. Yeah. Um, amazing. Thanks so much. Thanks for chatting. Okay, friend. As mentioned, Amy Keller Laird is on various social media platforms at Club Mental. She also has her website, which is unabashedly honest about women's mental health. And you can find that online at clubmental.com. I've included links to both of those things in the show notes. And that's it for me for this week, at least. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for being great. I appreciate your five-star reviews and you sharing this with your friends and loved ones. It is helping me to spread a more positive and collective, compassionate impact on the planet. And I'm grateful for you. Appreciate you a lot. Thanks for being here. And I will talk to you soon.